Amen. Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning to the third chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, where we are going to be considering verses 1 through 10. That is Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. You can find that passage either on page 1071 in your pew Bibles or on page 16 in your Acts journals. We've been talking now for several weeks about this major event in the birth of the Christian church where Almighty God, always faithful to His promises, has poured out the Holy Spirit upon His people. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, was now fully ascended to the right hand of God in the place of all power and authority. Jesus is now ruling and reigning over His creation. And He has sent His Spirit to His people to be their aid, to be their helper in His physical absence. That was the cause of that first great apostolic sermon that we've been looking at together for the last few weeks now in the second chapter of Acts, given by the Apostle Peter. Last week we began to see the effect of that Holy Spirit-empowered sermon. 3,000 souls had bowed the knee before King Jesus. And of course, the effect went well beyond just this crowd who had gathered and who had heard that sermon. It affected even the followers of Jesus Christ themselves. And the effect really was the birth of a glorious, unified church. And Luke, writing here, showed us just a couple of ways that that unity was being made manifest in these followers of Jesus Christ through the Spirit-empowered preaching of the Gospel. And both, you will remember, had to do with devotion. They were devoted to things as those who had been transformed by the Spirit through the power of the Gospel. First, he showed us that they were devoted to the Apostles' doctrine or to their teaching. Not just interested in it, you understand. Not just casually intrigued by it. They were devoted to it. What specifically was it about that doctrine that they were devoted to that Luke is here tying to the teaching of these apostles? Well, it was the teaching that indeed Jesus of Nazareth, whom all of these people knew, was in fact the long-awaited Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel. He is the one. He is at the center of all of the law and the prophets. He and He alone is the substance behind every single shadow of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the great promise of God. And it's unmistakable here in Acts. And the mission of the church of Jesus Christ is now to be witnesses to the great truth of who Jesus is and what He came to accomplish. 
to make clear what he had already accomplished and to even point the world to what was still to come. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He has come to bring restoration to all that has become broken under the weight of the curse of sin. This Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Redeemer of mankind. And from the outset, these apostles are devoted to showing the world the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of seeing Him, the followers of Jesus Christ are committed. They are devoted to the Gospel. They are devoted to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus indeed left aside the glory that was His with His Father and He came down to us to walk among us to sympathize with our weaknesses. To live blamelessly under the holy law of God and then willingly become the one and only perfectly fitted sacrifice for our sin. To receive upon Himself through both His life and His death upon the cross the full penalty for our sin. To take upon Himself the very wrath of Almighty God poured out against our sin in our place. To arise victorious over sin, death, and the devil. To ascend to the right hand of the Father where we know He now rules until that time when He will come again in glory to make all things new. They were devoted to this precious truth. And as a result of that devotion, we saw another devotion beginning to surface in this newly formed church of Jesus Christ. Another fruit of the gospel, having transformed them through the power of the Spirit. They were devoted to one another. They were devoted to fellowship, Luke tells us. He tells us they had all things in common, that they had sold whatever it was they had, and they had used the proceeds to alleviate any needs within their community. Willingly. Not under, not under oppression, not under duress, not under the compulsion of power-hungry leadership. Willingly. In fact, the impression that Luke is giving us here at the end of chapter 2 is that it was happening not only willingly, but joyfully. It was their joy to give of their blessings to see others in their midst blessed by God. And I mentioned last week, it's a challenging picture of the church, isn't it? It is challenging for us to see this picture of a church unified in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had a real, authentic, heartfelt, active love for one another. And they were doing much more than just coming together for worship. They were doing that, of course, but they were doing much more than just that. These relationships were about much more than just the religious area of their lives. 
They were spending time outside of worship together. Luke tells us they were going to one another's houses. They were even taking meals together. It is such a beautiful picture of life in the kingdom of God, right? This is not at all a picture of a bunch of individuals seeking their place or their fame as the next spiritual superstars. This is not the picture of a fractured little church with its members looking desperately for the perfect church. The one that fits all their whimsies and desires, their personal preferences. It is a united church and its unity is simple. They are united in in and around Jesus Christ, who is both Lord and Christ. And we can see here that the church of Jesus Christ, united in Christ, truly is a desirable place to be. No one is there because they must be. No one is there living, as it were, under protest. They are devoted to the gospel, and that devotion is driving them to be devoted to one another, to being together, to fellowship. What a beautiful concept. Beloved, if you're anything like me, it's convicting, right? And yet at the same time, it's also very hopeful. We are united in Christ. We are so willing to be divided. But this church was known for their love. And the people around it were beginning to take notice. That was the third thing we looked at. The world around them was now officially intrigued. Their love for one another was attractive. It made people around them wonder about the hope that was within them, driving these people together. Life in Jesus Christ is a joyful life. And as members of the church of Jesus Christ... You and I need to remind one another of that. We need to remember that the thing that unites us is far, far greater than the petty things that so often separate us. This is the kingdom of Almighty God. And our great King, King Jesus, is upon His throne. And we should be enjoying our time in His kingdom together. This morning we're going to see that this kingdom really has only just begun to grow. We're going to be looking at this well-known encounter that a man who had been lame in his legs since the time of his birth has with two of the apostles, with Peter and John. We will again be reminded of the hope of those who place their trust in King Jesus. So if you've not already done so, please turn with me now to Acts chapter 3 and follow along This morning as I read verses 1 through 10. Acts 3, 1 through 10. Hear now the holy, infallible, and inerrant word of our Lord. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. 
And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would clear our hearts and our minds from the many, many things that distract us in this life. We pray we would give our full attention to your word so that hearing your word through the power of your spirit, we might have our faith strengthened and nourished that we might live more and more for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this event, the healing of this man who was lame from the time of his birth, the the Greek there literally means from the time of his mother's womb. This man was crippled, he was lame in his legs. And it marks really what is the first of the apostolic miracles performed in the book of Acts. It is the first of 14 miracles such instances that will take place in this book. And of course, there are many, many similarities between this new age of apostolic miracles here at the inception of the Christian church and the miracles that Jesus Christ himself performed during his earthly ministry. The blind receive their sight. The deaf have their hearing restored. Demons are cast out. The lame rise up and walk. God is still working through the authority of Jesus Christ over all things, now through these apostles. Again, there are many similarities that we will see in the book of Acts come up again and again and again. The only real difference is that when Jesus was performing some of these miracles, he also spoke with authority, authority that was uniquely his, going so far as to even forgive sins. Whereas we find the apostles, and specifically here the apostle Peter, using the occasion of this miracle simply to explain to the crowd what was being shown to them through the miracle. Miracles usually were visible acts that served to point to a much deeper spiritual reality. So Peter used his own mediation through miracles as an opportunity to expound upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that here in the text before us. This miracle will set up Peter's next great sermon to these crowds that are gathering to see this spectacle of sorts taking place in the temple courts. Though it is, of course, much more than just a setup. 
I do not mean to imply in any way that what we have before us this morning is a clever ploy to play on the emotions of this crowd or on any crowd for that matter. This setup really did not originate with Peter, who preaches the sermon, but with Almighty God himself. This is clearly the hand of God working through his servant to bring about the salvation of his people. So I want to make sure that we see that here first and foremost. This is the wonderful, gracious providence of Almighty God on display here. Do you see that this morning? Because, beloved, we need to see it. I am convinced that at least one of the reasons that we live in such fear so often is that we fail to understand what it means that we belong to Jesus. That He is indeed moving in and through our lives and that all things come to us because of His perfect and holy will. That the clear teaching of the Bible is that you and I can trust Him. That He indeed loves us and He cares for us. And so I ask you at the outset as we start to dig into this, do you trust Jesus Christ this morning with your life? Let's dig in a little deeper here and see the hand of God. Luke tells us that Peter and John, two well-known apostles, are going up to the temple to pray. And this was the ninth hour. So this is probably three o'clock in the afternoon. It's the three o'clock prayer that's taking place daily at the temple. And it's worth noting, at least as an aside, that these men are still going to the temple for such things. Because that's all soon about to change. But at this point, they were still associated at least with their Jewish brethren. And that relationship will quickly deteriorate the more they become visible in their proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel will do its great work, fueling love and devotion to Christ in one, while raising opposition and those who hate its message of redemption in Jesus. But here they are, two apostles, Peter and John, making their way to the temple to pray. And there is this crippled man who is a regular fixture at the temple gate, who was carried by friends or family daily to the gate called Beautiful so that he could beg for money. He could ask alms of the people who were making their way into the temple court. And there's much, much discussion among commentators as to which particular gate leading into the temple court that this one was, the gate called Beautiful. I believe it was most likely the Shushan Gate, which would have been the most elaborate and the main gate into the temple court. It probably saw the most traffic, and so it would have been a great place for this man to have full visibility with this throng of worshipers making their way towards the temple. I'm also sure that it really doesn't matter. We just need to know that this man was there, that he was known to the people, he was a regular fixture at the temple gate. 
And immediately as this encounter unfolds, we see something here about these disciples that is worth noting. They were compassionate. Do you notice that here? We know they were loving with one another, right? Luke has made that clear. It was a recognizable, a tangible trait in their community. They were attracting the attention of many in and around Jerusalem. Their loving fellowship was well known. But it went, much, it went beyond that. They, like Christ their King, were compassionate towards the brokenness that surrounded them in this world. Consider this scene. We know everything that's been going on in and around Jerusalem at this moment in time. And they're making their way to pray to God, to worship God, the God who has just poured out His Holy Spirit upon them. So many people with the same objective walk by this same man and they either pay Him no attention at all or they throw Him a few measly coins and they never think about Him again. These two men are apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are leaders in their community, and they are instantly struck with compassion for this man's condition. The man sees them among this throng of people. He singles in on them, and he asks them for money. We know very little of this man outside of this narrative here, and the brief mention of his age around 40 years old uh, that will come up in chapter 4. 40 years, and he's never been able to walk. He's never been able to stand on his own. So you can imagine the state of this man's legs. No muscle. Undoubtedly rigid from 40 years of being unused, unmoved, unexercised. Peter and John take notice of him. They lock upon him with their eyes. Even as they're making their way to worship God, undoubtedly something they're desperate to do, they see this man and they're moved with compassion. They see his brokenness. They recognize it as brokenness because of sin in the world. And moved with compassion, Peter says to the man, look at us. They now have the man's attention. It's almost a little cruel. This man looks to them expectantly, expecting to receive money, right? Waiting for the coins that he feels will alleviate his greatest need in life. To eat. To be fed. He has no way of supporting himself, and so he comes here to beg for everything he needs. And this is part, in his mind at least, this is the part when he will receive what he needs. And you can imagine his heart dropping a bit as Peter says those famous words. We sing about them. We didn't do it this year in VBS, but we, we sing in VBS all the time, you know, this, this song about Peter and John going to the temple to pray. Peter looks at him and he says, Silver and gold I do not have. There will be no coins on this day. But Peter's not finished. He says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have 
I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Luke tells us that Peter took this man by the right hand and he helped him to stand on withered feet. And immediately this man's feet and his ankles were restored to health, made strong, the word of God says. And the man immediately began leaping and walking and praising God as he made his way to the temple with Peter and John to worship. And the people in this crowd, this throng at the temple, the people recognized him. And they marveled. They were filled, Luke says, with wonder and amazement at what they were seeing. And as I mentioned then, the gathering crowd, these who we are told are amazed at what has taken place, they then become the audience for Peter's next great sermon. We're going to dig into that sermon next week. But this morning, I want us to consider just a couple of things here in this event itself. Again, not exhaustive. We're barely scratching the surface of the thing. I, I hope and I pray that you'll go back and you'll look at it again. But clearly, we see the providence of Almighty God at work here, right? It would be hard to deny. Not only in building His church, but in restoring what has been lost in His creation because of sin. We've talked about it in the life and ministry of Jesus, and surely we see it here with these apostles who are but continuing the work that Jesus had already begun. This man endured a lifetime of suffering, and in an instant, his legs are restored because God cares. Have you ever thought about that? His people care. We have to see it. You know, maybe you feel alone in this life. Maybe you've been hurt. You've been abandoned. You've been abused. You've experienced the pain of suffering and loss. And you find yourself at times wondering how God could care. Where is he in your pain, in your suffering? Why would God bring us through pain? Why would God bring us suffering? His providence. Beloved, do you see the love of God here expressed through his servants towards an afflicted, suffering individual? That's not the only thing going on here, but it's undeniably here, right? God cares. God cares and God will take care of you. Have you experienced that truth in your life? Are you being used for that in the lives of other people? Deep, searching questions to be sure, but we see it here. God's gracious providence 
You understand, this is not a chance encounter this day at the gate called beautiful. Because there are no such thing as chance encounters. King Jesus is on his throne. Luke has made that point from the very beginning. He's on his throne. He is ruling. He is reigning. He is moving and directing all things according to his perfect will. God's wonderful providence. Another thing we need to see here is that we are being conditioned here to see the Bible in the same way that these apostles were taught to see it by Jesus Christ himself. Not only during his earthly ministry, but during that 40 days when he in his resurrected body taught his apostles all about the word of God and showed himself in all of it. Peter will expound upon that somewhat in the sermon that follows this event. I hope, though, that by now, as these things unfold before us each Lord's Day, or in your own personal study, that you're beginning to sort of connect the dots when we see these kinds of things. If not, I'm going to help you this morning. There is something very familiar in these healing miracles. Isn't there? In Matthew chapter 11, we find John the Baptist in prison. And apparently, Jesus had begun to gain so much fame or perhaps notoriety that in prison, under Herod, John is hearing regularly of the things that are going on in and around surrounding the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. He's hearing about his authoritative teaching. He's hearing about these miracles. He's even hearing about Jesus forgiving sin as only God himself would ever be able to do. And he's beginning to wrestle a bit with doubt. Can you believe it? John the Baptist... And so, in his doubt, in his fear, he sends two of his disciples to find Jesus and to ask him point blank, look, are you the coming one? Or do we need to start looking for another? John had already supernaturally declared that Jesus was indeed the coming one. You you, you can't not remember Jesus coming to his baptism and John standing in front of God and people and saying, Behold the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. John knows who Jesus is. But now, in affliction, in prison, he's beginning to be worried. He's in prison and his doubts are beginning to stoke the fire of his fleshly fear. And certainly we can relate to that, right? I'm not standing in judgment over John by any means. What does Jesus say to these two men, these two disciples of John that come and they ask him this very direct question? Jesus says, go and tell John the things that you see and hear. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, The lepers are cleansed, 
and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. It's the first little leap in our minds if we're familiar with the word of God, right? This is the sign that the Messiah has come. The blind see, the deaf hear, and the lame walk. And here it is again in the book of Acts. Beloved, I'm telling you, bring your doubts and your fears and your worries here. Where else do our minds go? Well, Luke undoubtedly remembers another occasion. Luke was the one who wrote about it in his gospel account, chapter 4. Jesus came to his hometown of Nazareth and he makes his way to the synagogue with God's people. As was his custom on the Sabbath. Makes his way to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, Jesus stands up to read and they hand him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Jesus finds the place. We know it's Psalm 61. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then, of course, Jesus closes the book. And he says, today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. You understand? This is me, is what Jesus is saying. I am the one. Again, these events tie Jesus Christ to much more than just being some worker of miracles. This is He who was promised from the beginning. This is truly the hope of all of the people. This is the Messiah. But beloved, we can go even further. We can connect more dots, so to speak. Jesus took those who were present in the synagogue that day to the prophet Isaiah, and he says to them, this is that. I am he. The scripture is being fulfilled in your day. The prophecy of old was finding its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you caught it this morning as we read Isaiah 35. Especially verses 4 through 7. In Isaiah 34, just before 35, the prophet gives to us a picture of God's great day of judgment. And it builds up, and it builds up to chapter 35 when he gets to the hope of God's people through all of it. And Isaiah says in in chapter 35, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even joy with singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. 
Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And then listen. (laughs) Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped and the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing for waters will burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert the parched ground shall become a pool and a thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of jackals where each lay there shall be grass and reeds and rushes do you understand this is that Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Do you hear what's going on here in the book of Acts? It has begun. Jesus came and he brought relief, sweet relief, to those who were hurting and broken because of sin. But he brought much more than just physical relief. Jesus brings new life to dead things. I said at the beginning of this sermon that these miracles serve to point to a much deeper spiritual reality. They did more than that, of course, but ultimately we can see very clearly that they did do that. Jesus is the restorer of things long dead. That man's legs, 40 years of no movement, long dead. Long atrophied muscles, long weakened ankle joints and feet, weakened bones. No hope of ever being cured through the patient care of even the world's best physician. Healed. Made alive in an instant. Restored, not just to the wobbly legs of a toddler learning to walk or to the wobbly legs of a, a fawn who is standing up for the very first time. No, he, he's raised up to walking and leaping and praising God. The apostles, with the authority of King Jesus, who has authority over all things from his throne, declare in his name, rise up, And dead, broken things are made new. They're given life to the glory of God. Beloved, it is exactly what happens to us through the power of the Holy Spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel. Do you believe that? We are long dead. Our muscles allowing us to ever rise and rightly praise Almighty God are long dead and atrophied. We are dead in trespasses and sins. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are dead, born into the sin of our father Adam. That's the picture that Scripture paints. Born the enemies of Almighty God. And King Jesus speaks a word, the gospel, through the mouth of his servant, and we are immediately given life in him. Do you see? He is the king of creation and the Lord of the earth. 
Beloved, this is gospel hope. We see it here. We need to be students of the Word of God because quite frankly, we need to see it everywhere. Don't we? Do you see it in the Word of God? Beloved, do you recognize this morning our hope in this? It's a miracle to be sure. This is the supernatural hand of God bending the laws of nature all in order to bring sweet relief to a desperate soul. In more ways than one. That's the point. Peter will expound upon it next week when we look together at the sermon that flows from this event and we see Christ the King continue to grow His kingdom. So too will the opposition to it grow. And we'll look at that as well. This morning, though, I want to leave you with this gospel hope ringing in your hearts and your minds. Do you know the Word of God? Do these things come to you? Do you know the Word of God? Because what really could be more worthy of your time? We need this hope. Desperately. We need it like the air that we breathe. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, I think we all know something of what it is to live under the weight and the burden of fear and anxiety, don't we? I do. Do you? We know what it is to struggle in our sinful flesh to ever just take God at His word. To trust Him. We need to make our way from this miracle back through the narratives of the Gospel, back through the Law and the Prophets, because when we do, we have a place to take our fear and get it properly adjusted. We hear Isaiah say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong and do, do not fear. Your God will come and save you. Real gospel hope. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know this hope? I pray that we do. Do you express this hope to those whom God in His mercy has placed around you to point them to this hope? I pray that we do. God will calm our fearful hearts God will even use you to calm the fearful heart of your neighbor. Because after all, it's still the mission to proclaim the glorious hope of King Jesus to all who are afraid and burdened and heavy laden. Beloved, the gospel is a treasure. It's a field of inestimable value. It's the pearl of great price. And the world needs the hope of what we have. Will you be comforted by the hope of the gospel? And will you use the hope of the gospel to comfort the world that God has placed you in? I pray that we will.